This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And so I want to give a special thank you to Sam Eaton and Taylor Preston, who both just signed up this week to support us on Patreon, and to Leonard Tatanchia and Rural Lucian, who both just made one-time contributions via check or PayPal. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 393 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the HBO series Watchmen, created by Damon Lindelof and based on the classic graphic novel written by Alan Moore. And this will involve spoilers for all nine episodes of the show, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Anthony Ha, making his 16th appearance on the show. He covers media, advertising, and pop culture for the news site TechCrunch, where he also hosts the podcast Original Content. A chapbook of his short stories called Love Songs for Monsters was published by Youth in Decline in 2014, and his short story Late Train appears in the February issue of Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet. So, Anthony, welcome to the show. Hello, I'm glad to be back. Then next up, we've got Tobias S. Bakel, making his 11th appearance on the show. He's the author of the Xenowealth series of space adventure novels, the eco-thrillers Arctic Rising and Hurricane Fever, and the Halo novels The Cole Protocol and Envoy. His novel The Tangled Lands, which he wrote with Paolo Bacigalupi, recently received the World Fantasy Award. So, Toby, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And also joining us today is Lara Elena Donnelly, who you may remember from our panel on cities and fantasy and science fiction back in episode 307, and it's our panel on writers under 30 back in episode 242. Her short fiction has appeared in Strange Horizons, Escape Pod, and Nightmare, and her new novel Amnesty, the third book in her Amber Lowe dossier series, is out now. So Lara, welcome to the show. Hey, it's, it's great to be back. All right, so let's start off with Anthony and have you just tell us about what were your expectations going into HBO's Watchmen? They were extremely high. Um, I was probably the perfect age when I read the Watchmen graphic novel, which is to say I'd grown up reading superhero comics and read Watchmen probably. I'm, I'm, I don't remember for sure, but I'm going to guess in my early teens. And so it was, you know, this absolutely formative experience for me and, and to me sort of as far as superhero comics go, remains very much the pinnacle in my mind on the one hand. And then on the other hand, um, I think uh, The Leftovers, which is the last show that Damon Lindelof did, was probably my favorite TV show of the last 10 years. So put those two things together and I was extremely excited. And how about what did you think of the Watchmen movie, the Zack Snyder 2009 movie? I didn't hate... Well, I... I <laughs> I guess I don't think it's a terrible movie, but it feels completely inessential because in, in in so many ways it tries to replicate the comics, but the comic as a comic is so perfect that everything it does when it's trying to recreate the images from the from the graphic novel, it's just going to become an inferior version. So it just seems completely unnecessary, even if 
on some level, it seems like this sort of noble failure because it is so faithful to the graphic novel. But at the same time, I watched it once and never felt the desire to watch it again. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I read Watchmen. I wasn't as young as you. I was probably, I don't know, I think I was probably in college when I read it. You know, my uh, cousin Ross had a copy of it. And so I was just over at their house for, I think, for Christmas or Thanksgiving or something. And I just read Watchmen rather than socializing with my family. And it was an amazing (laughs) time. Um, I don't mind the Zack Snyder movie at all. I mean, I only watched it the one time, but I thought, you know, you know, they took Watchmen and they made it into a movie. Um, I didn't love all the music choices and stuff, but, uh, I think there's actually a lot to like in that movie. Um, but actually what I really liked is when the movie came out, they did this thing called the Watchmen motion comic, uh, where they took the art, you know, the frames from the graphic novel and sort of animated them a little bit and did voices and things. And I think that that thing is amazing. Uh, I've watched that, I think, you know, two or three times. Um, and so, yeah, if, uh, if the Zack Snyder movie didn't do it for you, give the, uh, the motion comic a try. Cause I think it's really cool, but I, you know, I, I didn't watch the leftovers. I'm still sort of, uh, uh, carrying my lost, <laughs> um, angst, against Damon Lindelof. So I was pretty nervous just when I heard about this, just the idea of a Watchmen, you know, follow-up TV series doesn't necessarily sound like it's going to be good. You know, like there's a lot of ways that could go wrong. Um, But then, um, you know, everyone was saying how great it was. So I decided to check it out. Um, Loved it. uh, But we can get into that uh, in a little bit. But so, uh, so Lara, what were your uh, expectations going into the Watchmen TV series? You know, I there were ads for it all over the subway and I would look at them and be like, eh. <laughs> so my expectations going in were actually like null. I was not even thinking about it. And my partner started watching it and he watched the first two episodes, I think, and he said, oh, it's pretty good. And I think I was homesick one day and was like, well, I might as well. And I watched the first two episodes and then watched the third one. And I got so excited and was like, this is amazing. This is so much better than I anticipated. Um, and we ended up then watching the rest of the episodes together. Every Sunday night, we get really jazzed about it. Um, last night, obviously, being the big conclusion. Um, so my expectations were like absolutely zero. And then to have it kind of come out of left field and just smack me with how awesome it was, um, was pretty exciting. But like, you know, in New York, there are always ads up in the subway for, ooh, the next big TV thing. And so this one was just, ooh, the next big TV thing. And I really was just not, I was not that pumped for it. And now I feel ashamed of myself. (laughs) Yeah, see, I don't live in New York anymore, so I don't even know. So what kind of, what do the subway ads look like for Watchmen? So... Originally, the ads were just like Regina King against the clock, right? It's the pro- the one big promo image. Um, like she's blue and she's standing against the yellow clock. Um, but what I missed because we were at home, we were hosting a party, uh, the day that the premiere happened. So I didn't go out at all and see this, but apparently what happened is that the day of the premiere, they had a countdown clock in every subway station. Um, counting down until the premiere happened, which is really meta because when you watch the first episode, I think it's the first episode where they do the countdown to the American Hero Story premiere. Um, it was very like, oh, that's what they did for this show. And I had a friend who was out that day and saw the countdown clocks and said it was really surreal because you'd get on the train at one station 
And then it would pull into the next station and all of the countdown clocks were synchronized. And he was like, it really was. He works in immersive theater. So he was like, it was very weird. It was like being in an immersive theater production, but in my real life. And it really did feel like a a countdown clock to a doomsday. Uh, So I'm kind of sad that I missed that piece of promo. So when you say in every subway station, is that some poetic license there or... I don't know. I didn't see it. (laughs) I didn't see it. But he said, like, everywhere there was a Watchmen ad, they had a countdown clock. Or probably it was probably everywhere that they have, like, digital ad screens instead of print ad. Um, But he said that, like, he would get on the train in one station and there'd be the countdown clock. And then they'd pull in and there'd be a countdown clock still going. And that it was just totally wild. Yeah. See, what they should have done is drop a gigantic squid on Madison Square Garden, <laughs> killing thousands yes. of people. That, that really In fact, happened. now that you bring it up, I'm, I'm, I'm mad that they didn't do it. Yeah, that's why, that's why they need me to do their uh, marketing. <laughs> um, but so how about, oh, and, and Lara, what was your, uh, do you want to say anything about your uh, history with Watchmen? Do you have any, do you have a history with Watchmen? Yeah, you know, I read it in, I want to say either middle school or high school. Um, because I was a nerd and my nerdy friends were reading it. And I don't think I really, like, I was not old enough to kind of wrap my mind about around all of the things that were going on. So in preparation for this podcast, I was like, I should reread that comic book. And it, man, it's, it's dark. It's really (laughs) dark. And it was fascinating to read it while also watching the show because there's so much uh irony that didn't register with me the first time that I read it but also now the irony feels not as it feels like not as funny and almost not as ironic as I'm sure it was when the book came out I was trying to describe it to someone and I said it was like if you if you read like a an quote ironic post on like reddit or 4chan where someone is going so hard on their like it's a joke it's irony that you start to feel like maybe it's actually not that ironic after all like that is how Watchmen reads to me now and in this climate and like where I am in my life so I was actually kind of uncomfortable while I was reading it in the same way that I'm sometimes uncomfortable reading things on the internet that purport to be ironic um and and sort of put up against the show, it was really interesting because the show, I mean, it, they're different. They were made in different times, right? So the show is much more integrated with, I think, the way people think about media and think about, uh, like, social conflict um, than, than, like, if you read the original Watchmen comic now. So that was really interesting. Maybe we can uh, come back to that in a little bit because I want to hear more about that. But I want to get Toby in here. And so, Toby, you told me you had not read Watchmen at all, right? Yeah, I had not read Watchmen. I was not able to find the comic, the graphic novel, back when it came out um, because I was living in the Caribbean, so I was kind of out of that loop. And when I first became aware of it, I was already living in the States when the movie came out. And so I just saw the movie kind of with no kind of background on it. And uh, once I watched it, everyone who had read the comics said it followed it very closely. So I just kind of shrugged and moved on. Uh, for me, uh, coming into the, the series, I was uh, 
kind of without much in the way of expectations. I had seen The Leftovers and enjoyed it. And of course, I really enjoyed Regina King's uh, performance in The Leftovers. So I was pretty psyched to see her doing something new. And uh, I really enjoyed the fact that I was reading some articles about just how many uh, writers of color and actors of color that uh, Damon Lindelof was kind of pulling into his orbit to kind of help him not step on any landmines in terms of just doing stuff that would seem original and, and daring to him, but would uh, might not necessarily be so. And so that kind of gave me a kind of confidence level and excitement about jumping into this and seeing what they were going to do with the ideas. Right. And so when your friends told you that the movie follows the graphic novel very closely, that's mostly true with one major exception <laughs> is that the movie fe- does not feature a giant squid drop. On <laughs> yeah. Square yeah. Garden. So, yeah. uh, you know, that's one reason if you have only seen the movie and then you watch the show, you might be like, wait, I don't remember the giant squid thing. Don't remember the giant squid at all. Yeah. Now I, 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 what, one of the things I did was, was, Lazily, instead of buying the book, I read a lot of reviews and everyone commented on the differences. So I kind of went into that feeling I've kind of, you know, much in the same way my kids are sometimes like, I don't want to watch Star Wars. I've absorbed it all. I I, I get it. <laughs> you know, I kind of felt like, okay, there was this this moment that happened and I kind of absorbed it all through secondary sources to the point where I, I just kind of somehow managed to live my life without going to the primary the primary original product. Yeah. So, so you read all those reviews before you started watching the show or did you like watch a couple episodes of the show and then go and read the reviews? I watched, I read the reviews first. I had seen some stuff about it and was kind of like, ah, that could be good. That might not be good. You know, who knows? And I have like mad respect for uh, some of the actors and actresses in there. So that was kind of interesting. A lot of them are actors that seem to think really hard about what they sign up for. Uh, Tim Blake Nelson and, like I said, Regina King. Uh, and so that kind of gave me a kind of hint that maybe this would be something interesting. And then uh, I read a couple interviews where he was talking with uh, – where the, I, I'm trying to remember where I read these interviews. Um, but there was one interview in particular where uh, Regina King was being interviewed and talked about just the influence she and other uh, – people of color who are actors uh, had on basically t- telling Damon like what he could do and what he could not do. And that kind of like, let me relax <laughs> and kind of get excited about seeing it. Um, and so I went back, I think it was, I think we watched, I read, I watched it with a buddy who knew nothing about any of the Watchmen mythos or anything at all to do with it. So I kind of, you know, asked him if he wanted to be, if he was interested in seeing that. So we were watching that together as as we went along over the last few weeks. Right. So let me just say what I, from my research, what I know about how this TV show came about. So apparently, uh, I don't know if it's, is it Warner Brothers, the company, whatever the company is that owns the rights to Watchmen, had approached Damon Lindelof a few times over the years, I think starting even when he was back on Lost and saying, do you want to do Watchmen? And he had said, absolutely not. Nobody should do Watchmen. Alan Moore doesn't want anyone to do Watchmen. Uh, I'm not interested. And then the the third time they asked him, they're kind of like, you know, we're we're kind of going ahead with you or without you. And he's like, uh, you know, on the one hand, I, you know, I have all these reasons why it shouldn't be done. And on the other hand, I've loved Watchmen my whole life. And, you know, so we, I, I feel like I got it. I, I can't pass this opportunity up. And it's interesting because he said he had been reading, you know, he said like all everyone in 
Hollywood was kind of reading Ta-Nehisi Coates and talking about it. And so he read Ta-Nehisi Coates and, you know, from, um, I think it was his article, uh, the case for reparations that was in the Atlantic, um, mentions this, um, this massacre that happened in Tulsa in 1921. And, um, and Damon Lindelof was like, wow, you know, I, I feel ashamed to admit that I never, had never heard of this before. Um, and so that was kind of on his mind. And then they came back and the, you know, Warner brothers or whatever came back and said, you know, you sure you don't want to do Watchmen? And all the things that were kind of going on in his mind came together. And, and he just had this idea of doing this very, you know, topical, uh, you know, risky kind of show that would, that would sort of in its own way m- mimic the, uh, you know, the topicality and, and riskiness of, um, of the original Watchmen when it came out. Um, so, uh, so Anthony, did you, uh, did you follow, follow all this stuff? Any, uh, corrections or additions to what I just said? Uh, I didn't necessarily follow all of the, the sort of pre-production developments, but, but that, that maps to, to my sense of, um, you know, of, of how it happened. And, um, I mean, I think probably the, the aspect of it that I followed the most was there was also this period where, Lindelof was just giving a lot of interviews about the fact that he was making a Watchmen adaptation when Alan Moore has very, you know, publicly and repeatedly said that he's not interested, that no one should adapt Watchmen. He doesn't think anyone should, should do it. And so, um, and, and Lindelof was sort of in some ways saying like, well, Alan Moore in 1986, you know, had this kind of punk rock, kill your gods, kill your heroes, um, attitude towards superhero comics. And now I have to have the exact same attitude towards this, you know, the create the writer of this graphic novel that's so beloved to me. I have to be, you know, just as iconoclastic in a way about making this show, which I thought was an interesting approach. Right. And, um, I think Alan Moore had always said that he had written, uh, Watchmen along with Dave Gibbons to, to be something that would only work in a comic book format and it wouldn't work in television or movies or something. And so I think that's part of it. I don't know if there's anything, do you know, is there any more Anthony that you know of, of why uh, Alan Moore felt so strongly that it shouldn't be adapted? Well, I think that Alan Moore basically feels that all of the uh, corporate owned superhero comics work that he's done, he's basically been cheated on. So he refuses, or at least claims that he's never seen any of the adaptations. He refuses to take any money uh, from the ad- any of the adaptations. He doesn't let his name be used on any of the adaptations. So if you watch this, it doesn't say based on the graphic novel by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. It says based on the either graphic novel or comics co-created by Dave Gibbons because Alan Moore just doesn't want his name on any of this stuff. So I think some of that may be specific to Watchmen, but I think a lot of it is just a general sense of betrayal and disillusionment with the you know the U.S. comics industry and not wanting any of that stuff perpetuated. Yeah, that's really too bad. I mean, I, I saw this. Um, there was this Twitter thread that Alan Moore's daughter posted about. It was really heartbreaking, just about how much he loved comics and just gave everything to it, and it kind of you know, you know, and just 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 ended up feeling really rotten about the whole thing. And um, it was just it was just really kind of sad. Yeah. Um. Clara. Oh. <laughs> We're like, wow, what a downer to bring me in. <laughs> Lara, cheer us up. Okay, so this is pretty cheerful. Uh, Alan Moore has gone on record, or at least I've heard this from other people, but Alan Moore has gone on record saying the one Watchmen adaptation he would approve 
would be the adaptation that is hinted at, if you will, in a, a spoof that was posted on YouTube of like, what if Watchmen was an 80s Saturday morning cartoon? Uh, and it's like the theme intro to the theoretical 1980s Saturday morning cartoon Watchmen. It has a theme song and bad animation. And for some reason, Silk Spectre is playing a keytar. And it's like <laughs> incredibly catchy. And if you watch it, it will get stuck in your head. And then you will remember Alan Moore and be like, this is the only adaptation that Alan Moore would approve of. Okay, sure. Uh, so highly recommend it. <laughs> Just Google 1980s Watchmen cartoon uh, for a boost after you listen to that part of the podcast. Well, I think in some ways the I think the kill your kill your icons approach that Damon Lindelof took made this you know something really interesting and and vastly more creative and and fascinating to watch than just had he tried to reimagine the original 1980s product, you know, the, the original 1980s not graphic novel, because what he did here was kind of run with, you know, using it as a foundational world, kind of run with, you know, exploring some aspects of our world through this, this lens and talking about stuff that was, you know, I think fascinating um, and timely and important that like would have maybe gotten, you know, he wouldn't have been able to do if he was just trying to mimic or recreate the original. Yeah. So let me just, uh, this is a, this show is very, very complicated, but let me just try <laughs> to basically describe what's going on. Oh boy. <laughs> uh, so, and, oh, and let me just say, I mean, you know, I know a lot of people listen to these without watching, the, listen to our podcast without watching the show. Cause they're like, um, you know, I don't have time to watch all these shows, but I can at least kind of keep up on the culture and hear what you guys think and everything. But, um, this is a show you really want to watch this. So, uh, it's amazing. So if you haven't watched the show, I mean, you can do what you want, right? It's your podcast and, <laughs> and everything. But, uh, it's a free country. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, seriously, uh, if you're going to watch, actually watch any show before listening to the podcast, listen for this one. But if you're going to ignore that warning and continue anyway, I'll tell you basically what's going on is that we it starts out as i said we see this this massacre that happened in Tulsa in 1921 where there was this area called Greenwood which was called the the Black Wall Street it was this very prosperous um neighborhood and the um you know the sort of the their white neighbors just kind of there was um uh i think i read there you know um this this rumor started that um a black man had accosted a white woman. It sounds like actually he sort of tripped in an elevator and bumped into her. But, um, you know, the rumor mill went crazy and, and there was all this violence. And uh, I think like a hundred or 200 people were killed and thousands injured and lots and lots of like 30 blocks, you know, burned and all this kind of stuff. So, so it starts out with this and we see a young boy who is sort of, um, you know, his parents, a young, a young black boy is, packaged off by his parents and, and, and given to some people who help him flee the city. And he, this is okay. This is going to be a real summary, but so he, he, he eventually <laughs> becomes the first superhero in this world, hooded justice. And, uh, the main character that we follow, um, who, who goes by sort of a, the superhero moniker of sister Knight, turns about, turns out to be his granddaughter. And, she gets wrapped up in this whole conspiracy involving the police department that she works for and this local 
sort of cult of white supremacists who all wear Rorschach masks, the character Rorschach from the original Watchmen. And uh, yeah, lots of other stuff happens. But um, I don't know. I guess that's enough to start us off, off with. <laughs> lots of other stuff Lots happens. of other stuff. <laughs> yeah, a few uh, other things. I, for me, uh, the, the opening with Tulsa was so profound, and that's what made me kind of fall in love with watching it to see where it would go, because that has been something that, you know, when I came to the States, I'd never heard about. And when I found out about it, was completely and utterly shocked. It is, it is like such a deep and grievous wound. And there's so many examples of these, uh, all throughout the States, black, you know, uh, populations who were, uh, rioted out or just, you know, like for example, uh, in one of the Carolinas, there was a whole community that was destroyed, printing presses destroyed. There are all these examples of, of just, uh, sort of non-democratic violence. Uh, against uh, post-Civil um, War black communities that had become successful uh, after being liberated from being, you know, people who were enslaved. And so you have this this moment of, like, powerful, you know, we, we do a lot of alternate history thinking, you know, when we're in science fiction and, and genre, and there are all these what-ifs. And there's this idea that, like, our world is the the best possible alternative, which is kind of hard to agree with if you're a person of color when you look at these moments like the reconstruction and where it all kind of goes goes astray and the Tulsa thing is is remarkable not just for the destruction of Black Wall Street but it was also the first time that uh um a a an air uh, uh there was an uh bombing with a biplane using sticks of dynamite of the community which they display in in in, in the opening act there um, and since I've, I've culturally never seen any visual representations of the Tulsa, Oklahoma destruction, like the moment I saw that, I was so struck by that. I, I, I referenced the Tulsa, Oklahoma destruction in a short story of mine called Endcoin, uh, that I wrote a year ago. But seeing it on the screen there, I, I was so moved by that. And to see, um, a show that deals with, uh, the attempt to, as you were saying with Tanahisi Coates, uh, look at what would reparations for something like that be um, that I was I was pretty shook by it and and moved to see it on screen. Yeah, I had right. a similar. Oh, sorry, David. Go ahead. Oh, right. So I was just going to say, I don't know if everyone caught this. I don't think I necessarily caught this, but um, until I was listening to reviews and stuff. But um, so the president in this in the present in this world is Robert Redford. And so there's been a reparations program that people refer to as Redfordations. And um, and so they've set up this, um, I guess, I think actually there is a real historical, like a museum uh, in Tulsa. Um, but in this in this alternate world, it's turned into this sort of science fiction museum. And if you can prove that you're uh, genetically a descendant of one of the victims, then you get um, like tax exemptions or something, I think is how it works. Um, but so, so, so Lara, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I had a similar conversation with a coworker of mine who had started watching Watchmen and she was flabbergasted that it opened with the massacre on black wall street in Greenwood. And she was like, I know that happened. Um, she's black. And she was like, I know that happened. And my friends know that happened. No one like that doesn't, that doesn't get shown. And the first thing I mm-hmm. thought of was like, oh, there's a short story, a, a short story that's published in Nightmare Magazine called Bride Before You. Uh, I think the author's name is Stephanie Malia Morris. 
And it references Black Wall Street just as a matter of course, not necessarily the massacre, but just the fact that it exists. And I had never heard of it before I read that story. And then when I saw when Watchmen premiered that Black Wall Street was like trending on Twitter, I was like, the only reason I know about this is because I read a short story by a Black author who referenced it as a matter of course, like piece of history that exists that I should know about. And I didn't. And so she was like, no one knows about this. I know about this. Like my friends, my family, we know about it, but it, it doesn't get put in pieces of media. And I was like, you have to read this story. Um, but it's something that's like, to see it treated just as a piece of history that should be common knowledge and isn't is just totally a commentary on like the way history is treated in, um, like in school and in public, like the public conscience. It was really a fascinating conversation to have. And also in that, in that Rolling Stone interview with Damon Lindelof that I think you read, Dave, because you were talking about some things he said in it, he talked about how after the show premiered and Black Wall Street was trending, but not Watchmen, he was like, we did something right with that first episode. If they're not talking about the show, but they're talking about Black Wall Street, then I like we achieved what I wanted to achieve. Yeah, yeah well, and, and to another point David Lindelof was making that I thought was really good is, you know, if, if you just made a show, he was comparing it some, to something like Chernobyl. You know, if you just made a show, The Massacre of Tulsa 1921 or something, um, you know, a certain number of people would watch that. But the number of people who will watch a superhero comic book show is is much, much larger. And so by embedding these sort of, you know, important historical social concerns within a show like Watchmen, it's, uh, you know, it's raising the awareness of something like that to, to a much higher level than than, you know, a more tightly focused uh, show would have done, you know, sort of realistic historical show would have done. Isn't that the magic of genre? I mean, that's the magic of fiction, right? Is that we can take something like that and kind of pull it apart and put it back together into something new and unexpected that kind of gets gets it past more barriers than otherwise might have, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. I want to get uh, Anthony back in here. So, Anthony, why don't you um, tell us about the the present of this, uh, you know, the world and just kind of what did you think of the, of the present story um, in the first episode or two? Right. So, um, essentially what it's proceeding from is, is this sort of big incident, um, which I don't think you, did you talk about, like, did you give the details of the squid when you were summarizing the, the, no, it was covered by lots right. of things happen. <laughs> I think that was underneath lots of things happened. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So that, that third, so in 1985, basically, um, that there was this, um, you know, that we were basically on the brink of nuclear Armageddon for reasons that can also go under lots of things happened. <laughs> um, and so this, uh, one of the, the superhero heroes, um, Ozymandias, who's played in the show by Jeremy Irons. I love Jeremy the, Irons so much. <laughs> yeah, he's so good. And, and the way he decides to, um, avert that is basically by creating this elaborate hoax where he has this, uh, giant squid created and teleported into the middle of New York, sending out this psychic shock wave, um, for, that, uh, that basically kills three million people. And the fear of this alien invasion is, is what halts this, um, nuclear arms race. And so fast forward, uh, 30 years. And, and that's, I guess, sort of, sort of in the background. Um, but there are like little bits of it, like the fact that, that squid 
still fall from the sky <laughs> randomly. Um, but I guess sort of more immediately is that I, I, it seems like costumed heroes have basically, um, in, in the form that they existed in, in watching the comic and, and that we know from superhero comics aren't really around anymore. There aren't like these sort of costumed vigilantes running around, but what has sort of taken their place is the actual police and, and that specifically there was a, an incident called the white knight where, um, these, uh, supremacist, white supremacist, uh, Rorschach followers, um, basically found, went to the homes of a bunch of police officers in Tulsa and, and killed them. And so as, since then, the police now are, uh, are, are wearing, are basically the costume heroes. So, so all of them have secret identities. I think, I guess with the exception of the police chief and, um, and, and so there's basically, a, they all the wear murder, masks, right? Right. They all wear masks. Um, some of them just have these sort of generic yellow masks, but but some of them have these sort of more colorful names and identities. Um, and again, that's mostly just sort of backstory. And and so what I guess gets the the story of of Watchmen started is the murder of a police officer by one of these um, uh, the members of the Seventh Cavalry, which then there's sort of this bigger investigation around that. And, and then it, it escalates to the point where actually the chief of police is, uh, is murdered and, and not just murdered, but actually strung up from a tree and, um, sister Knight, Um, the, again, the sort of main, the, the protagonist of the show, um, played by Regina King finds, and, and a good friend of the, of the police chief finds him strung up and, also finds this old African American man, uh, who we later learn is her grandfather, as I think you mentioned, um, sitting in a wheelchair by the by the tree and basically saying, "Oh, I I strung him up," um, and th- and that's kind of the the setup. Yeah, yeah. So that's a really good summary. So I'll say about the first three. Let's see, what is it? Three or four episodes? I think the first four episodes. I thought that this was an excellent TV show. Um, but then I thought starting with episode five, it just took it up to a whole nother level. Um, so I think that's the first thing I want to just get everyone's opinion on. Um, so Lara, did you think that the first four episodes were excellent, but that it took it to the next level with episode five? Or do you disagree with that? So I was actually talking about this in the reverse order. <laughs> earlier today with my partner because I like we liked the finale we thought it tied up a lot of loose threads wait wait I'm not talking about the sorry I'm not no talking no about no the I'm I promise I'm gonna I'm gonna get to the way the the question that you asked okay. right so it's it's an interesting way to structure it right the for me the absolute like killer episodes were this like center chunk um that was kind of bracketed by like we got to get you into it and then we got to get you out of it. But the real, like, astounding television was right there in the middle. Um, and for me, it was, like, episode eight, I think. I was already, like, committed. Um, and I did, like, I, I can't identify the moment. This is why I started talking about the end first. I can't identify the moment when I was, like, this is freaking incredible. But I know looking back, like, which part of it was to me the most 
like intense distilled completely like what like they put this on television so i think that you're right in saying like it really lures you in with being like this is excellent tv and then by the time you're in the middle of it you're like oh my god i can't believe that this was put on television like this is the most wild unique incredible i have never seen anything like this before on tv um it was pretty incredible. Yeah. How about Toby? Do you did you have that same sort of trajectory or a different tra trajectory? Yeah. The first episode really blew me away for the reasons I discussed. Uh, but one of the things I started to find interesting was it's two. There two. I I I, don't, I wouldn't break it up into two bits like that. I find it to be like a really interesting thread or tapestry sets of threads. Uh, one of the things is that I think there are these sub plots about trauma that are really interesting um trauma of sort of the the black experience of living in america which begins right away with one but also then uh continues throughout uh uh you know our main character's life as uh, sister knight what what is her name in real life again um abar angela, angela abar, abar. Yeah. um angela's life um in the trauma of of having you know her disconnection uh to previous generations which is something that's a big part of, of, you know, um, some, some experiences in, in the U S but, uh, and then the interesting thing about how that's acted out through the middle section with the, uh, character of her grandfather who is hooded justice. Um, and the way that they do this meta narrative of, um, how stories and time are changed, which I deeply loved. So hooded justice is this, you know, becomes this cultural, um, moment. And they talk about Bass Reeves, you know, and, and how that legend changes, um, and it impacts the grandfather. And then this, for this her. This is the black, uh, sheriff in the Old West. Yes. Bass Reeves is a, a black sheriff in the Old West. And of course, in our culture, um, the black sheriffs in the Old West have been changed to white, right? Um, the original, uh, uh, Lone Ranger was most likely, um, I think, uh, a black, um, uh, bounty, uh, hunter slash marshal slash, uh, lawgiver out in the old West. Um, but he's turned into a white person in the 1950s, right? Um, so when you look at that stuff that happens to us now, where, you know, we constantly change heroes to white and, and take away that, um, in the past, and you look at how hooded justice gets turned into a white character who can deal out violence, like violence is a mandate of, of angry white person who hides his identity. Uh, and then how that suddenly changes and becomes shocking when you learn that it's a, uh, bisexual, uh, black man underneath the hood who has had the trauma of the neighborhood he came from completely destroyed and is trying to figure out how to deal with that. It is like this amazing gut punch of trying to look at how things change by time and perspective and who gets the right to use violence and the superhero iconography. Um, and, and why, why does that change when it becomes a black person engaging in violence? So like these meta things that it plays with them, what is, what is, uh, superhero justice and what is vigilante justice because the original vig vigilante justice is the thing that kicks off this whole thing the horrible vigilante justice of all those white people taking violence into their own hands 
right? Um, and that just kind of pervasively winds itself all the way through as a thread. So for me, like just following those threads and picking them apart, for me, it felt all very organic. Um, and not, uh, not for me, there was no like separation there. I just kept failing. Like I was following those threads of intergenerational trauma, loss of, of connection, um, and explorations and who gets to be a vigilante and what is vigilante justice. Well, yeah, I mean, I did this, this episode six where, um, Angela takes these pills called nostalgia and kind of relives all of her grandfather's memories. Uh, that was the highlight of the show to me. And it was not just in storytelling terms, but just visually, it was, I just couldn't, I just, my jaw was on the floor just watching it. And also the fact that, you know, I don't think it was ever the intention in the original comic for Hooded Justice to to have the backstory that he does in this show, but it yeah. just makes so much sense and fits so perfectly. And, you know, it, it's just like such a, um, you know, uh, synchronicity um, that, that everything sort of comes together that way. But I, I wanted to ask, you know, Lara, I know that you have this real interest in these sort of periods, right? Like the 20s and the 30s and stuff like that, where a lot of these scenes are. So I was just curious if you had, like, what was your reaction to seeing the, these different historical periods in the show? I was naturally stoked. Um, but I also just find the way that the show plays with time to be incredibly fascinating. And, uh, like, it adds, because, like, Dr. Manhattan, right, exists in all time simultaneously, uh, or at least, like, all time that he has experienced, he is experiencing at the same time. And so the show kind of gives you this feeling of being able to do that um, as a viewer, but also that the characters are kind of being allowed to experience time that way. Um, so I was very excited to see, like, this show momentarily turn into a period piece. But also, for me, the most astounding sort of time travel, time play episode was actually the episode after. So I think it was episode six where Angela, we get like Angela as a child in Vietnam. Um, no, 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 sorry. It's the one after. It's the one after. It's the one where, where she meets Dr. Manhattan. Um, so the episode, oh, that's episode eight. Yeah. Oh, the, the episode where well, she, sorry. Oh, I was going to say, I mean, yeah. So there's like Angela's childhood is seven and then her romance with Dr. Manhattan is eight, I think. So I guess for me, those kind of like melded into one, um, like one chunk of like, wow. Um, because to see like where Angela came from and then to see her build this relationship with John slash Dr. Manhattan slash Cal, um, it gives you this, it feels like continuity, right? From her grandfather's experience, when they tell her you're not going to be able to tell your own memories from your grandfather's and then your own memories from like the present that you're experiencing. And then the viewer is seeing all of this at once and it never felt jarring. Like that was the amazing thing to me was that the time jumps never felt jarring as like, now we will do exposition by having a flashback. It was like, no, it's all just happening. All of this is happening to these people all at once, which like when you have something traumatic or even just dramatic happen to you, it lives with you like for the rest of your life. You're always experiencing it in some way. So it just felt really authentic to the experience of having like something important happen and continue to happen to you in a way that influences like everything you do for the rest of your life. 
and then to have it sort of called back or referred to um, by this idea that like Cal slash John slash Dr. Manhattan is also living that way, but in a very sort of practical way. Like he Mm -hmm. actually is in all time at once. Um, I just, I love the way the show plays with time so much. (laughs) I thought it was genius. Yeah. So, I mean, so my overall, my reaction to the show was, you know, as I said, I thought the first four or five episodes were absolutely top notch. And then the next couple episodes were just positively transcendent. Um, and it was like to the point where, you know, last night as I was getting ready to watch the um, finale, I was kind of like, I'm not even sure what to even say, like, other than just like watch the show. Like, I don't even know <laughs> what to, you know, it's just like, it's great. Watch it. Like, um, but then I, I found to the last episode a bit of a letdown. And so like on, on the one hand, I was like, I mean, it's, 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 it's good. You know, uh, there's nothing particularly wrong with it, but after the couple episodes that came before it, um, you know, I, I felt like it, it, it didn't match the, you know, transcendent quality. And so I was kind of like, you know, on the one hand, you know, that's a little, that's a bit of a shame. But on the other hand, now we have some criticisms. <laughs> and I saw um, Anthony on Twitter. You you said something to that effect, right? And you were sort of you're starting to argue with our our good friend Sarah Lynn Missioner, right? So, uh, what kind of talk about what your reaction was to the finale? Sure. Um, I think that part of it was because I I had just loved so much of of what has come before, and and that like you know I I think that that if you take those first eight episodes, like. I, I think partly because I, when I first see something, I get just very hyped up and excited as we discussed a little bit in my reaction when we did our review of the Terminator movie too. But, um, this, you know, I was just like, this could be like my favorite show of all time. I love this so much. And then the finale, I felt like was not a bad finale, but it was a bit of a step down and, and that on its own terms, it's fine. But compared to either the Watchmen graphic novel, or this idealized version of the Watchmen TV show that existed in my head until that moment, it, it didn't quite get there. And I, and I would say I, maybe um, two specific things I would point to are, I think in general, it just sort of there, because I, part of what I love about the show is how um, completely bold it is about just sort of tossing in these like crazy concepts and expecting people to go with it. But I think that, that by, by its nature, when you have to then wrap up the story and, and you're still moving in a lot of ways at a thousand miles a minute, it becomes a little bit less satisfying. And, and so, you know, earlier on, we had this revelation that, um, that the senator that we've met and also the chief of police who was good friends with Angela were basically working together with the seventh cavalry. And then it's mentioned at one point even that, um, that in fact, the reason why the police are wearing masks is part of that conspiracy. That was part of the, the senator's plan all along. Um, but that's never really dealt with. I, th- I think that's a really co- compelling idea. And, and part of what makes the show so interesting is this sort of, I think when we think about the, the politics around policing in America right now is that we think of, you know, police on the one side, African Americans on the other side. And so ha- like telling the story, through the lens of, you know, an African-American woman on the police force, you know, complicates that in a really interesting way. And then on top of that, having, you know, the whole, um, you know, what she thinks she knows about her role within that is, is completely undermined. None of that really gets dealt with. It's sort of like mentioned. And then there's like a whole bunch of plot mechanics we have to deal with. And I found that, you know, kind of, kind of a letdown. Um, 
I think part of it was also my feelings about um, how the character of Lady True was dealt with. And so Lady True is the, um, this, one of the many characters we have not discussed, <laughs> uh, who is, uh, this like, uh, rich, uh, in, you know, incredibly, uh, rich and smart person who has bought, um, the, the, uh, the company owned by, uh, the Adrian Veidt slash Ozymandias, the guy behind the giant squid. Um, and it, what kind of becomes clear in the final episode is that A, she is, uh, Adrian Veidt's biological daughter and that she is in some has in some way or- orchestrated everything that's happened so far. Um, and her goal is to, um, kill Dr. Manhattan and take his power. And, um, and so what happens instead is that, uh, her father, um, actually manages to orchestrate another squid fall of giant of like tiny frozen squid um which uh kills her and stops her i mean she is able to to kill dr manhattan but doesn't actually sort of um isn't able to absorb the powers yet and and i guess and part of the crux of this episode is that i think i don't think this is stated explicitly but there's the way that is basically lady there are a couple people who want dr manhattan's power and are killed for it and then um, at the end, Angela actually discovers that, that, um, uh, Dr. Manhattan, who was her, you know, as we sort of implied, was sort of her husband in hiding for 10 years, has left her this egg, which was sort of set up, foreshadowed earlier. Christ, this is really hard to explain. <laughs> um, and she eats the egg and that, and basically is very, very, very strongly implied that she, um, then gets his powers. And, and I think, what bothered me about that is I was really, ha- in the moment, really happy to see Angela get those powers and to see, and this idea, and it's also been set up with this idea that the hooded justice character who's still alive tells her, John was a good man, but he could have done so many, so much more with those powers. And so it's sort of, it's, it, the suggestion is Angela may be the right person to really use those in an interesting way and in, in, in a compelling, in a way that John didn't. And, I guess I, 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 I felt like the, the structure of the finale is that Lady True is essentially the, you know, quote unquote big bad, which I found very unsatisfying because like I, um, thought of, you know, I, I felt like the, there was this sort of, um, this kind of Hollywood trope that like anyone who wants power is bad and that we ex- just are supposed to accept that Lady True is bad. And, and my reading of the show is certainly that she's done a, a few like really horrible things, primarily the fact that she's willing to kill Dr. Manhattan for his power. And I don't want to minimize that, but I think like most of the characters on the show have done horrific things. I mean, Dr. Manhattan himself went to Vietnam for the United States government and probably did a bunch of very, very questionable things there to win the war. Um, and so the fact that like it, it, it felt very arbitrary and kind of Hollywoody to me that suddenly Lady True is the villain and that, you know, the only reason that we're given on, um, that's stated, um, in the show itself, why she's the villain, it comes from Ozymandias, who is, you know, admittedly not the most trustworthy source, but he basically says, oh, well, no one who wants the power should be trusted with the power. 
And I just found that like a really unsatisfying explanation for why we're supposed to suddenly root against this character who I think until that point had been really complex and interesting and, and compelling. And then sort of just to put her into the villain role so we could have this sort of spectacular ending was kind of a letdown. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I mean, I, I felt like the ending was it sort of like checked all the boxes, but felt sort of um, predictable or, or sort of like conventional compared to so much of the rest of the show. And it also sort of compressed because I felt like, you know, the whole, you know, seven episodes or eight episodes leading up to that is setting up the, you know, this, the sinister senator and it's setting up Lady True and it's setting up Ozymandias and Ozymandias and uh, Lady True are both, you know, the most intelligent woman and the most intelligent man on earth. You know, Ozymandias, we know from the original comic and we see it in this too, is like his powers of will and physical perfection are so developed that he can snatch a bullet out of the air and stuff. And then one by one, they each, you know, fall very quickly and with what seems not an adequate amount of struggle or effort to me on the part of the heroes in a way that, you know, kind of really minimized them in the end, especially just Ozymandias kind of getting conked on the back of the head with the wrench. Um, yeah, it, it just <laughs> felt all too easy to me. Um, but so, Lara, what do you think about that? So, uh, two, two thoughts. Um, first thought, just from a narrative structure standpoint, I feel like in any story, there's, when we talk about TV, we're like, there's so much pressure on the finale, right? But looking at the way a story is shaped, the finale is just tying off loose ends, right? The meatiest part of the story, the most exciting, the place where all of the stuff really happens is not at the very end. It's like slightly before the very end. So I think we're all talking about these episodes in the middle of the show that are like incredibly intense and have all this amazing stuff going on, like beautiful moments of character reveal and like deepening of the intention of the show. Uh, and like, to me, it feels fine that this last episode was a little bit like neat because he only had that one episode, and like it probably could have well, been. Well, but a bit could they could they have had two episodes? So yeah, I mean, develop. I was just about to say like it could have been a bit longer. I don't know if it could have been stretched over two episodes because uh, it felt like it was time, right? It felt like it was time to end it. It could have been maybe like twenty minutes longer. Uh, <laughs> but but I like to me, I was not upset that it was a that it was a neat ending because I felt like all of the emotional arcs were were nicely rounded off, which for me in a story is really the important part is like, it it was fine to me that Adrian Veidt got conked on the head with a wrench because he's so clearly past his prime. He was just waiting for someone to conk him on the head with a wrench, right? Like, but he's so- I, I, But they have him catch a bullet again, like right before. I feel like if they hadn't done that, it would have made it more clear that he's kind of, you know... Yeah, his his abilities have attenuated and everything. But but so. I think when he catches the bullet in that, like on Europa, he has to sort of manufacture challenges to himself, right? So he's still he's still Ozymandias when he's on Europa. When he gets back to Earth, he's just some old guy. Um, so like it it felt emotionally right to me that he got conked on the head with a wrench. Um, because I wasn't really focused on that. I was focused on like Angela and Cal. And how that was all going to shake out and like Angela's relationship with her grandfather, which I thought the scene in the theater where he tells her, you know, like wounds need air, like you can't heal behind a mask, wounds need air. That was this, that was the strongest scene in that episode. And that relationship is so much at the heart of the story that like 
they nailed that and I was with them. But the second part of this answer is also from that Lindelof interview in Rolling Stone, which everyone should go read because it's a great interview. But he talks about how the 7th Cavalry as the villain representing white supremacy is not a villain that you can beat easily in the season finale of a TV show, right? It's a pervasive evil. You can't defeat it by vaporizing like 10 people and turning some asshole senator into goo. Like he didn't see a way that he could create a finale of this show where the seventh cavalry was beaten because it felt disingenuous to be like, yeah, we beat white supremacy in this television show and then have people go back to the world and be like, well, no, you didn't. And also, I I don't even believe that you could do it in this TV show. So like swapping out for this other big bad who was sort of defeatable and leaving the 7th Cavalry and by extension, white supremacy extant in the world was like, that's the only way that we can kind of see to wrap this up because we can't have them beat the big bad in such a fashion, um, which I thought was a really interesting way to think about what they were doing with that last episode of the show. See, Toby, what did you think of the finale? So, I mean, we've only had 24 hours to process it. Sometimes <laughs> I feel like, you know, like, what did you feel? I mean, sometimes it takes time to kind of work that stuff out. And, uh, but I, I have, I mean, my immediate thoughts are that I, I felt that narratively it tied everything up. So on a structure point, and I'm normally a bit of a structure junkie narratively as a writer. Uh, I, I did like, you know, the, the, the structure mechanics of it. However, I, where I, where I felt a little bit let down and, and Lara started to kind of dig into that was that I felt, I felt that the mechanics were there, but thematically what was really powerful about this series for me were the, the look at the nature of policing, uh, violence, vigilantism, identity, uh, intergenerational trauma, and the white supremacy is expressed through 7th Cavalry. And so, I mean, for me, the shocking moments were finding out, you know, that someone she loved and was close to and who treated her nicely was all along a white supremacist. There are always these moments, um, I know for me, where someone will say something and, and who I've known for many years, and suddenly you find out that they're a raging racist even though they've been nice to you all this time and and that that's that's always this mini trauma for me um and uh exactly what lara was saying what the director was saying how do you turn that into the big villain one of the things that was hard for me about the finale was that even though i understand the dilemma of how to make the white supremacist the big villain i felt that because he looks for a mechanical big bad that we completely minimize actually the police and the white supremacists for the final episode mm-hmm. because he uh uh you know like what happens in the plot is then that uh the police just show up in a bunch of cars so that we can see the characters again but we never kind of delve a l- you know deeper into the meaning of, of of we don't dig deeper into their role and then the white supremacists are just all sitting there in their in their chairs next in the church that gets teleported over and and you know you know uh lady true is just like oh of course i'm going to kill you all and she snaps her fingers and and boom they're just gone so i found that deeply unsatisfying because by the way i wanted to see them all die um, <laughs> and two i mean as much as i deeply love the senator being turned into a tube of goo um 
I felt it was like really super easy. Um, and I felt that it stole some agency away from Angela Abar, who was kind of our main character into all of this, right? I was really specifically frustrated that, uh, um, that, you know, uh, everyone but Angela Abar was teleported off to save the day and she just got to stand there and watch. Oh, but, but. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. But like, this I'm... moment, so to me, that moment, <laughs> it's like the last thing that my partner and I talked about before we went to sleep last night was that moment where, so John is sort of this inhuman, like, can't connect with the way normal people live their lives because he's now a blue glowing godlike creature. Um, and that moment where she's like, why did you teleport everyone else? And he says, I didn't want to be alone. Yeah. And he like, he makes this little face. It's not like a, he doesn't do like a big acting gesture. It's like a micro expression. And it's this incredible moment where you remember that he's human and it's so selfish of him to teleport everyone else to safety and keep the woman he loves with him in this very dangerous situation. But he's scared and he's, he's acting selfishly in his fear, but it's something that we can all completely understand. And it just is like such a clincher moment of like, Dr. Manhattan is human. Everyone else is treating him like an asset or like a Mm. resource. Mm. And it's this moment of, I am human and I'm going to act incredibly humanly right now. And it was so heartbreaking. It was just such an incredible moment and like beautiful acting, beautiful acting. So one of the, I think you touch on one of the things that's also great about this that we haven't discussed is that they have such a healthy and amazing uh, relationship. Yes. Yes. Right. I mean, (laughs) it's such a positive, it's such a positive relationship. There's some aspects. Yes, they taught, there's such an aspect of their family dynamic that is not what you typically see. Um, there's, they're, they're black atheists, right? They're, they don't go to Baptist church, right? Not that there's anything wrong with Baptist church, black Baptist church or religion. Um, but you don't see a lot of positive depictions of, uh, sort of, uh, black atheists. Um, they, they have such a, a conversational, they talk through all of their stuff so well. Um, they have, uh, such, even though there's such a, a big power dynamic difference initially, uh, there's so much, uh, openness and, uh, respect for each other. And it's such a really warm and loving relationship that that was a really powerful piece, I thought, of this. Yeah. I want to also mention, we haven't mentioned, I don't think really this episode, which one was it? Uh, five where it's all about the the PTSD and trauma of uh of Wade having lived through the, <gasps> Wade. the squid. Wade. And I just that, as I said that was the first the first episode where I was like this is just you know like everything it was like a 9 or a 10 up till now now it's just like it's gone off the charts with this episode. And <laughs> I just thought just the idea that you could take you know something so you know sort of silly on its face as the giant squid and and just make you feel that emotion so much. Uh, I just thought it was spectacular to the to the effect that I was almost a little bit disappointed. You know when he he makes this connection with the woman who comes to his support group, and you know initially you're like oh she's obviously she's a spy or like something you know, 
And then it goes it it goes on so long in the diner and everything. I actually started thinking like maybe she's not a spy or something. Maybe it's like actually going to be a whole episode just about what it's like to live with this trauma and you know. And so I was a little disappointed when it turned out she was a spy, but it was just like so well done up to that point. Um, and uh, yeah, just everything. And and I guess also Lara was talking about like the the sort of time travel aspects or being unstuck at the unstuckedness in time of Doctor Manhattan, and there's just something so powerful to me about a lot of recent TV shows that have sort of dealt with with time and time travel and characters unstuck in time and stuff. And like you know these episodes, the time travel stuff made me cry. Like there was an incredibly powerful episode of. Uh, uh, Haunting of Hill House, where it's all about being unstuck in time. And then there was another one also in Castle Rock that made me cry. And I just want to, you know, I just want to like draw a little bit of attention to that of just, you know, I don't know, there's just something about the, the care, you know, the, the different time periods of someone's life all kind of colliding and being jumbled together that is just so resonant uh, mm. with me. And that moment in the, in the last episode, right before, Cal is disintegrated where he's where she says, where are you? Which is what she asked him previously when she's like frustrated with him. Right. She's like, where are you? You know, when are you? You're not here with me right now. And so she asks him, where are you? And he's like, I'm in every moment that I've ever been with you. And it was just like tears, <laughs> tears <laughs> now. But yeah, but like when, and it, it ties back to that sort of like when something dramatic happens to you, it's always with you that like time travel and any kind of media that lets you experience all those moments with the character simultaneously is like, you're feeling it all. <laughs> you're feeling it all right now in this one moment. Um, Anthony, you have anything you want to add here? Um, mostly just to agree, I suppose that, um, I mean, uh, that again, that middle stretch of episodes is, I think, by far, you know, I think all the episodes are, 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 are great. And, uh, but like, yeah, there, there's this stretch from like five to eight that I think is really where the show is just, you know, one of the best things that's maybe the best thing that's ever been on television. I mean, those like, like, um, and, and particularly, I mean, my person, I, I think I understand why people are so excited about and, and, or not excited, but like responded so strongly to, um, this extraordinary being, which is the episode about, uh, hooded justice. And I, and I do think that was just really powerful. And, and I think in a lot of ways, this encapsulates the kind of the, this, the, the really powerful ideas that are kind of running through the whole show. But for me, definitely the, the, the episode that hit me the hardest was, uh, God walks into a bar, um, which is, uh, the, the episode about the relationship between Angela and Dr. Manhattan and everything about that, like just, it's interesting you guys talk about it as, as sort of this kind of, that the jumble of time was sort of emotionally resonant with you and, and, and like, you know, with some of the ways you, you look at sort of your own emotional experiences. Cause to me, in some ways it was, it felt more like trying to illustrate a largely alien perspective of, of, you know, that I, you know, obviously we don't on a basic level experience time that way, but is how would you in a fictional format actually try to bring that to life? And, and I, that was what was so effective about it. Um, and you know, that moment, I mean, definitely I, I cried twice in that episode once, um, when the, the moment when he, you know, gets down on one knee and she puts the little device in his head, I, I found tremendously moving. And then at the very end where she's about to, you know, go out and, and defend him, even though he's said that it's hopeless 
And he says, this is the, actually the moment when I fell in love with you. And that that's what colored everything else that's happened. Um, I, I, again, I, I just started bawling. Um, one, one thing I'm curious about is because I think I've noticed also a little bit of discussion about why doesn't Dr. Manhattan do X or Y? Because, you know, in theory, he's, uh, all, all powerful. And, and, you know, the, what I wonder about is to what extent do, do we think he has anything that we would understand as free will? Cause I think like the way he talks about everything, right, is that it's predetermined that like, why does he not step out of the way of the tachyon gun at the end of that episode is that in his mind, you know, and in the way he perceives it, he's already been, you know, shot by the tachyon gun. There's no meaningful sense in which he has a choice of stepping out of the way of the tachyon gun. And I'm curious if that's how you interpret it and if you still find that dramatically satisfying. Yeah, well, there's a line in the original Watchmen comic where he says, Dr. Manhattan says something to the effect of everyone is a puppet on strings. It's just that I can see the strings. And so I, I definitely don't feel that he has any free will at all. And I think that that's what's, you know, sort of poignant and tragic about his character is that on the surface, he has all the power, but in reality, he has no power. Um, I, I think that's sort of the, that's the point of the character as I, as I read mm, it. Okay. Yeah. This is interesting. Cause I've never actually thought maybe not never, but I, <laughs> I am thinking right now, uh, <laughs> talking about being unstuck in time, uh, experiencing all time at once. I'm thinking right now that it's not that he doesn't have free will. He has free will in every individual moment that he exists. But because he exists in all of those moments simultaneously, he is both always about to make a choice and also has already made it, right? So, like, in the aggregate, he doesn't have free will, but in each moment he does. So, it's like he he's making all his choices all at once and can see himself or experience himself making all those choices, which is very weird to, to try to like, uh, to try to understand what that would be like. I guess that was one thing I found a little frustrating with, um, with Angela is that, you know, he's told her from the very beginning, I'm going to die in, you know, 10 years. And she, even after 10 years of living with him, she doesn't seem to like, I guess that's maybe her character is that she doesn't accept it. But, you know, when she's just like, we beat him, you know, when you're, come on, he's about to get shot by the gun. Like, how do you not see that coming? You know, I, I, it, it seems like in just that, those moments, she was written a little um, obtuse, I guess. But that's the moment when he realizes he loves her, right? Is the moment where she makes that choice despite 10 years of him having told her, this is how this ends, right? It ends with a tragedy. And what you said about like, is that that she, like that that's just her character that she is that kind of person is kind of what i was thinking when i was trying to imagine like whether dr manhattan had free will or not right it's is it just that he has an intrinsic character that means that he has like already made all these choices and they're exactly the kind of choice that dr manhattan would make and so instead of like thinking about it as in terms of fate or free will, it's more thinking about it as like all these choices are when taken together, the character of Dr. Manhattan. And so like he loves Angela for being the character who is who she is, right? Cause he can experience all of her at once 
just the way he's experiencing like all of himself at once. So it's sort of talking about them in terms of their like character archetypes rather than whether fate or free will exists. See, Toby, what do you think? Do you believe in free will? It, I feel like I'm in college again here. (laughs) Oh man, that Dr. Manhattan's trippy, man. (laughs) Oh, um, that is heady stuff. And, and I, I always just find myself getting into these recursive sort of loops when I try to grapple with that stuff, which is, I think, one of the problems of why the ending was never going to be, uh, easy to do because you were going to always have people freaking out about the fact that Dr. Manhattan is all powerful. How, how could he end up dying? So, you know, it, it, it's, it's tough. I, I think. I, you know, I, 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 I enjoyed everything up to that point and I'm curious to see what they're going to do next as the fallout and how they, how they continue, how they continue the process. No, this uh, is it, man. There's this no is more. it. They're not doing anymore. Mm-mm. You know oh, what? That's I would, great. I would love for it to become, I said this on Twitter. I would love for it to become a sort of anthology where they do like, a different creator and a different story every season that have nothing to do with each other, except that they're set in the same world. And then we could have more Watchmen without messing up the complete arc of this story. So this is complete. That's so fantastic. I wasn't sure. I I hadn't, I hadn't, uh, I hadn't read it to see if there was going to be any more or whatever, but I'm, I'm quite delighted by that choice. I'm quite delighted. You know, I mean, Damon Lindelof said, you know, that the original Watchmen is a, has a beginning, middle and end. And he felt very strongly that this should have a beginning, middle and end, you know, and he has no, he said like, you know, I think maybe if he ever had an amazing idea for more Watchmen, uh, you know, he's not totally opposed to the idea, but he doesn't have any ideas for season two and, and isn't planning to do any, any more of it. Yeah, I, you know what? My, my hat is off because so many, something, so many things this successful and, and, and so many projects of this magnitude, uh, you know, sometimes go on longer than they should. And so being able to come up with a beginning, middle and end like that and do it for a season is amazing. So I'm, I'm impressed by that artistic choice. That couldn't have been easy to do. My sense of it is that, that he is, at least as you were saying, David, leaving the door open. So I don't think it's going to be an enormous shock if, if there does end up being a, a season two in a couple of years, but that this was conceived of and written as a complete story into itself. Mm. And just in terms of like the very serious themes that this is dealing with, I just feel like it would cheapen it so much for there mm. to be a continuation of it just for its, you know, for no other reason than to do it, you know, like it would mm-hmm. money, money, really money, good... money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you I, need some... I... No, go ahead, Toby. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm really impressed with like what he does when he's working in a, in a very f- detailed world. Um, I, I thought it, it, it really kind of allowed him to play with the elements of it a lot. So I, you know, if he were to go and take over some other, you know, take give us a, a new and interesting take on some other property. I would, I'd be really interested in seeing it after this experience. Yeah, absolutely. I want to bring up one of my favorite scenes that we haven't talked about yet is the scene that introduces lady true. Mm-hmm. So you see this, there's this couple um, living on a farm and uh, I don't know if I can quickly summarize it, but, but, but basically <laughs> they're um, you know, the lady true comes and says, I want to buy your farm. You have three minutes to, 
accept or decline. And they're kind of like, forget it. And she's like, you know, I know you came to one of my fertility clinics 10 years ago and, you know, they weren't able to help you, but I can help you and I can create a, um, you know, child for you from your, um, you know, sperm and eggs and stuff that are on file. And they're like, get out. And she's like, oh, actually, I did it already. Here's your baby. You know, do you want him or not? Like that whole thing was like, I was, you know, I think that was the, like, you, okay, so you had the, the massacre at the beginning, which was, you know, you're just like, I can't believe I'm, I'm watching this. And then that was I, I, probably the second thing for me. I might be forgetting something, but where I was just like, this show was just like so out there. Like, I, I was just so riveted at that part. And it was just such a great introduction for that char- for that character of Lady True. And yeah, I don't know. I just I just want to highlight how how amazing that scene was to me. This is probably going to sound like a stretch, but you were like, I can't believe that I'm seeing this on television, which is something that I said earlier. And I was like, I've said this about a piece of television before, and I can't remember what show it was. And I just remembered what it was. And it's Fleabag. And I remember when I was mm. watching that show, there were so many moments where I was just like, oh my God. I can't believe this is happening on TV. And I think the thing that they both share is just that they're like not afraid to go there. They're like, this is a real thing. Like a person would do this. Uh, Like maybe one of the writers is a person who has like experienced this or felt this or thought about saying this. And they're just like, yeah, put it in. (laughs) Um, And it's just this like incredible, um, like sense of recognition of being able to look at the TV and be like, Oh man, I've had that thought or like, I've seen that happen. I mean, obviously I have not seen a woman show up at my house and try to buy it by selling me my own baby. But you know, like it just feels like the, neither of the shows were afraid to just go straight for the thing they knew was going to hit. Yeah. Although now that I think about it, it makes sense that I I can't believe I'm seeing this on TV because it's not TV. It's HBO. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Any other, dare I say, any other criticism of this show? I would just echo, it was interesting when when Toby was talking about his reactions to the the finale, I think that, that sort of crystallized a feeling that I had, which is that um, I mean, I think one of the ways people talk about it is like Watchmen, you know, but with, with about, but about race in America. And I mean, I don't think that that's, that reduces it to just one idea, but that through line of it, um, I think does sort of climax in, in episode six. And it does feel like the next three episodes, it's still there, but it's not really about that anymore. And I think maybe that's part of my dissatisfaction or, or not dissat, but just sort of, slight disappointment with the finale is, is this feeling that like that had already been explored fully. And so like, there wasn't really any further they could go with it. To me, it felt like it didn't stop talking about race, but it started to talk about it less in a, in an actual like written into the dialogue and the storyline way and much more in a way that had to do with, visual cues, um, especially when Dr. Manhattan comes back, like when, when Angela busts Cal's head open and Dr. (laughs) Manhattan comes back and it's, it's still Cal. And also the scene in the morgue where he's like offering to take Mm -hmm. on any body that she wants. And she gives him like this guy, this guy, this guy. And he's like, you don't want 
any of these guys. Who do you actually want? And she pulls out Cal's body and she says, I'd be comfortable with him. And it's like, there are these moments where it's not letting you forget who these people are and what's happening in the show and what's happening in the world in a way that I found really smart and thoughtful, right? It wasn't trying to, it, it was just showing you like, this is, this is a real thing. This is like a real experience that these people are living uh, in a, in a incredibly acute visual way. Um, like every choice that was made in this show from the writing to just the way shots were set up and the choices that they made with like the imagery that they put in to me was like, they were really, really thinking about what they were doing. And like earlier I was talking about how everyone is treating Cal slash Dr. Manhattan. I don't even know what to call him. Like, do I call him John or Cal or Dr. Manhattan, the blue guy? They were all treating (laughs) him like a commodity in a way that felt because he keeps Cal's body felt in a sort of undercurrent in a, it it was still talking about race to me. Um, Mm -hmm. Like my friend, so my friend, Andrew, who writes amazing essays, he's been published on the black youth project um, has an essay on his blog about black men in horror movies where he's like, you know, the joke that black men in horror movies always die first. He's like, they don't really die first, but they die in the part of the movie where the our heroes are having all of their tools and advantages taken away. So like, oh no, the the phone line is cut. Like the road is washed out. The black man that we had with us is dead now. Um, and they're treated as like tools that the other characters would have used or assets that they could have used to fight whatever monster is trying to kill them. And the last, the last couple of episodes of Watchmen made me think about that essay because Dr. Manhattan keeps Cal's body and is clearly a black man and is being treated as a commodity by all these people who just want the power that he can offer them. And like the only people who think of him as a human still uh, are Laurie and Angela, who are like these two women who have loved him. So to me, like the show didn't stop talking about race. It just started talking about it in a different medium, which I found really fascinating. So to jump on and, and tail into that, one of the things I found really fascinating was the choice by the camera to never show us John's face mm. when he was uh, uh, white and to only show uh, his face once he became black. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was really an I excellent choice. Yeah. And, and I mean, it felt like something that um, on the one hand is so, sort of solving a kind of cinematic problem of just oh man, are we supposed to be emotionally invested in this other actor who we slathered in blue paint for the last two episodes? Um, and, and so it, but it then has those thematic resonances that, that you were talking about too. So it's, it's this nice thing where it kind of comes together. Yeah. I, for some reason that actually really affected that, that choice really had an impact on me. Uh, could you, what kind of impact? Um, I mean, we made Dr. Manhattan black, right? Um, cause at first I was really worried. I was like, you know, what? So, you know, being, you know, minorly academic minded, I'm like, what does it mean that Dr. Manhattan, a white guy from the 1950s is cosplaying as a black man? Um, to put it super bluntly. And yeah, well, Ozzy Mandius like, kind of makes that how, same 
Right. Exactly. He makes a joke of it. Right. Um, he's like, that's not, that's not very PC, John. Um, so, so I'm, I, I know that the writers were thinking about this and, uh, there's a, uh, there's an academic whose mind I'm blanking on and he gave a presentation when I was down at, at the University of the Virgin Islands kind of a, about, um, uh, you know, sort of con- different concepts of blackness, you know, um, how people are treated based on what they look like. Um, he was very interested in talking to me about the fact that I'm identify as biracial, but that I pass as white. And what, what does that truly make you? Um, and so I would have, I'm really curious to see what he makes of the idea of, of Dr. Manhattan to, by the end of this experience, choosing to stay, um, looking like, uh, Cal instead of going back to being John, right. Um, for the very end of this, like he, seems to have come to some, there was something there, you know, there's, there's something there as a result of his character, having gone through experiences with Angela Abar, um, uh, choosing to be with her. Um, he has, he has learned something, changed something has come to identify as, or is it the experience of everyone treating uh, a black person a certain way has given, you know, an omnipotent, omniscient being, um, a whole new experience and identity, um, that's super powerful, right? There's something really interesting there that I've only had like 24 hours to kind of think about it. And mm-hmm. I don't really have a lot of thoughts crystallized on it, but like that right there for me was super interesting. And I really, I mean, I think you could get a lot of really interesting thoughts out of that, that I'm doing badly here, but like that, I keep circling back to that. Um, the moment where, uh, sh- he comes back as Dr. Manhattan, and he still looks like Cal, but with a blue glow. I, I gasped, right? Mm-hmm. I was like, whoa, mm-hmm. you know, um, because, uh, yeah, there was something there that really was powerful to me. And I kept circling back and I've just been thinking of it, um, you know, a uh, week and a half later, I'm still kind of just thinking about that. Yeah. And there's so much stuff in this show. Like, I mean, we're pretty much out of time and we haven't even touched <laughs> on like 90% of the stuff in the show. And so, I mean, like I said, you got to watch it. Really cool. Um, but I mean, I, I, since we're uh, wrapping things up, I, I got to bring up the most important part of the show that we haven't touched on yet, which is uh, <laughs> what the fuck is up with Lube Man? I knew like, it. Seriously. I knew we, it. Yes, Lube Man. <laughs> what happened to Lube Man? I know what happened to Lube Man. I read the supplementary materials. Did you? I do, oh, Well, today at work, because of the Lube Man conspiracy uh, came up on my Twitter account because I was like, I want this anthology show, right? I want the next season to be about Wade and Lori in the FBI tracking down vigilantes together uh, and Petey trying to hide from Lori that he is Lube Man. Uh, and someone tagged me on Twitter and like this, uh, the final piece of PDPedia, which is like the supplementary materials that HBO put out, which I think is going to be wiped from the internet at the end of tomorrow. So like, Go out and read it really quick. But it's like an interdepartmental memo where Petey and Lori's boss is like, Petey is fired for like going off the rails and doing all this stuff that we told him not to do. And they're like, and also we found a bottle of a canola oil like substance in his office. So the fan theory that Petey is lube man has been uh, ratified by HBO. Okay. So so it's just a, a joke that you have to go to the website to for the payoff or yeah basically uh 
PD, PD is lube man. Sorry. Um, now I feel bad for like crushing the discussion that we might've had about <laughs> the lube man mystery. <laughs> Yeah, so if you're uh, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen the show and you're just wondering what what Lube Man is, there's just there's <laughs> a scene where like is it it's uh, Angela, right? Or does she? Yeah, Angela is like yeah. No, is it Angela or is it Lori? No, you're right. It's, it's Angela. Angela. Yeah. So yeah. she just sees this guy in this like skin tight gray spandex suit with like a belt with two bottles of lube. <laughs> <laughs> and as he's running away from her and she's going to catch him, he like squirts the lube all over himself and kind of like slides into a, a, a sewer. Opening. Uh, and it has nothing to do with anything else in the entire show. Uh, <laughs> you know, at first glance or whatever. Um, but all right. I'm glad that, that Lara is here to, here to tell us these things. I mean, yeah, it makes HBO, sense that HBO call me. I want to write the second season of Watchmen. <laughs> All right, cool. So uh, why don't we uh, wrap this up? Let's get some final final thoughts. So, um, Anthony, any any final thoughts on Watchmen? Sure. Um, I guess one other thing I would say is that I, I think that if you're someone who reads a lot of superhero stuff, um, what people a lot of people have taken from Watchmen is this idea of like grittiness and realism. And what I love about the show is that it's a lot less interested in that and a lot more interested in sort of trying to achieve the same level of intellectual audacity, formal audacity, and is in many ways even more politically audacious. And I think that is the absolute right lessons to take from Watchmen, the graphic novel. So, I mean, I, I love the show, despite the reservations I expressed. Yeah, and it's just nice to see something that takes so many... Because a lot of times something, you know, things take risks and it doesn't pay off artistically. Or if it does pay off artistically, it doesn't pay off you know, financially or in terms of popularity or whatever. And it's just nice to see something that's taking so many risks pay off in every way, as far as I'm aware. Uh, you know, some sometimes good things get rewarded in life. Uh, Lara, final thoughts? Man, you guys, watch this show. <laughs> that's, that's my final thought. Um, but also to kind of build on what Anthony was saying, like I said, I was rereading the comic before this podcast, and it's so dreary it's such a bummer it's a big bummer and this show while it is like at times i mean all the way through is like dealing with really heavy stuff and has very serious moments and is like really really taking on some chewy issues is also just like funny and joyful and beautiful i mean the comic is also beautiful but as i said a bummer <laughs> this show was like I I was excited to watch it every week. Um, and then it gave me bizarre dreams. Like I've been tired Monday mornings <laughs> for the last, you know, two months because I'd watch it and then I would lie in bed just like, whoa. And I get like a whole sort of psychedelic replay at night when I tried to go to sleep. Um, but it's just, it's like beautiful and, and incredibly creative and absolutely wild and i'm really glad that it got put on television yeah and the ending is like positively uh upbeat and life-affirming you know i mean it's uh yeah it's about an egg no, there's like right? dead silence so i don't know maybe, no maybe it is it's a no i agree it is. i agree it's like I agree. life right she has the tiny little life in her hands yeah uh, toby final thought I I friggin loved it. I mean, I know we sat there and we talked a lot about the finale and whether or not it 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 
you know, we couldn't find something to pick apart in it. But I mean, that sometimes that's, that's the problem with something that's so good is you have so much material that you can sit there and kind of pick apart, you know, and pick at it and have fun with that. Um, it, it was the problem of the middle of it being so amazing that you, you know, looked at the finale and kind of thought like, oh, that was, that was really good. You know, and had everything been really good, that would have been amazing, right? <laughs> so, uh, it's a case of the fact that this did so much really well that you had ridiculously high expectations for the ending, but it was not in any way, uh, dreary or unsatisfying. It was just, uh, a case of, of so much being done well that you just started to sit there and really think about it and pull it apart in your head and, and, and wonder, you know, what else could have happened. Or what, you know, you felt might have been kind of like slightly minimized. But like overall, this was a heck of a ride. I really loved it. I had a great time. I thought, like Lara said, it has this energy. It has a lot of joy, a love, um, as well as tackling these really huge, important, you know, great big things. And so I find it really fascinating when shows have this really divergent um, opinion thing right now. The uh, haters are kind of review bombing it on Rotten Tomatoes and some other places to kind of bring down its rating, but it has like this 98% critics rating and 44% uh, regular user rating. But uh, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm good grief. The fact that so many people are showing up to review bomb it means you should go out and watch it and, and make an opinion of your own. It is uh, a fantastic watch. It's great, yeah. And I've officially forgiven Damon Lindelof for the ending of Walk. So, <laughs> wow. He'll be, he'll, be happy to, he'll be relieved to hear that. You know, he was, he's been waiting next to his uh, phone and, you know, <laughs> in his office for this moment. He's just been like, man, if only Curtly would uh, get back to me on that and forgive me. Yes. And now it has happened. Yeah. Good, good job, Damon. So, uh, all right. Let's wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Anthony Ha, Tobias S. Bacal, and Lara Elena Donnelly. So thanks, everyone, so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. It was a blast. Thank you. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Anthony Ha, Tobias S. Bacal, and Lara Elena Donnelly for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.